Well, good morning. And grace and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father and the Holy Spirit be with us all. Shall we pray? <clears throat> Our Father, it's in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that we come this morning and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we're so thankful that we can come and be together here and worship and praise and read your word and hear from your word. Lord, we ask that as we have sung, that your Holy Spirit will fill this place and guide us this morning. Guide us to truth, Lord. Refrain us from error, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, Jerry didn't mention it, but in my other endeavors, I uh, work as a consulting engineer. <clears throat> you know, a consultant, that's just a mother-in-law with a briefcase. Uh, <clears throat> but I want to set the record straight right now about engineers. A lot of people think that engineers are dorky. They're tedious. They're nitpicking. And they're so boring in conversation that they could put you to sleep. And that's exactly right. <laughs> in fact... The story is told about a professor of engineering who dreamt that he was lecturing to his students. And when he awoke, he was. <laughs> so <clears throat> if you wake up before I do in the service this morning, poke me a little bit so I have enough time to get up to the church for the second service. Our scripture this morning... is the whole chapter of Genesis 15. Don't get bothered, it isn't that long. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven." And number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord that brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. 
Then when the birds of prey came down to the, on the carcasses, Adam, uh, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And after that, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down, and it was very dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, to the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenyazites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephium, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The word of the Lord for us this morning. This is sort of new for me sitting down. I certainly appreciate it because I... uh, Managed to get myself, oh, I didn't do it. A stupid deer tick did it, but I was able to come up with Lyme disease a few months ago. And it's still affecting my legs a little bit. So I appreciate this. To get started this morning, I want you to engage with me in a very technical theological exercise. So listen up. I want you to close your eyes. And to the very best of your ability, I want you to visualize your favorite ice cream cone. You can do that. You got it? You don't have to tell me what flavor it is. Okay, now you can open your eyes. Now I want you to close your eyes again. And this time, I want you to do... And visualize the best you can God the Father. Not God the Son, not God the Holy Spirit, but God the Father. Okay, you can open your eyes now. Now, if we had time, I might take a poll of you all and see what kind of visualization you came up with. But I've done this many times in many places. And usually I come up with about a handful of the same thing. The two main ones being, oh, I see great clouds in the sky and rays of sunshine coming from the clouds. And the other is, as you might guess, an old man with a long beard sitting on a glorious throne surrounded by splendor. Now, why is it 
you could visualize an ice cream cone very easily. But it was very, very difficult to visualize God the Father. It was simple, isn't it? An ice cream cone is temporal, it's material, but God is eternal and His Spirit. An ice cream cone fills time and space, but God is eternal and transcends time and space. But there are times when God in His graciousness has condescended to expose Himself to human beings as something physical. And he does it in different ways to meet different needs for different people. Theologians call it a theophany. We see it primarily in the Old Testament accounts where something momentous is going to happen or where God is revealing his plan, where he's encouraging his people. In the past six weeks, we have looked at ways God exposed himself to his chosen people. And he did it in ways they could comprehend at the particular moment that they needed it. In Moses, he appears afar in a burning bush. To Elijah, he was a still small voice. To Job, he was a whirlwind. To Jacob, he was an all-night wrestler. And last Lord's Day, we saw God as the general of the Lord's army. In every case, God appeared to that person where they were and in their need. Today, we're going to see God exposing himself in the most radical and the most vulnerable way as he appears to Abram as a flaming torch. Well, you say, what's so radical about a flaming torch? Hasn't God exposed himself in flames times before? After all, what about the burning bush? What about the pillar of flame by night? Well, folks, it isn't just the flaming torch, but what the flaming torch did. And we start out at the beginning of chapter 15 in Genesis with these words, after these things. Don't you just love it? After these things. After what things? So we have to back up and find out what these things were. Abram is first mentioned in the 11th chapter of Genesis, and it's really just in a genealogy list, but on, in the first verse of chapter 12, it talks about him specifically. Now, get this. Abram was not somebody super special, and that's why God picked him out. He was just Abram. He lived in Ur of the Chaldees. In the beginning of chapter 12, this is what we usually call the call of Abram. And it goes this way. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house, to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make you a great name, and you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those that bless you. And to those who dishonor you, I will curse. And in you, and this is important to you right now, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This, folks, was an unconditional promise. God didn't say to Abram, well, Abram, if you do this, then I'll do that. God didn't say to Abram, if you love me, then I'll do this. He didn't say, if you keep my commandments, then I'll do this. Because God's promises are always unconditional. Think about it. It has to be that way. If God's promises were conditional upon me, they'd never come to pass. Because I don't keep my word. Now, there are three parts to this promise given to Abram. He'd be given land, a whole lot of land. He'd become the father of a great nation. And through this nation, a blessing would come to the world. But suppose Abram had said to the Lord, well, wait a minute, suppose my faith fails. The Lord said, I will make of you a great nation. But suppose my descendants should become idolaters and whore after false gods. I will make you a great nation. But suppose my descendants will crucify your son. I will make you a great nation. You see, God promised to make Abram a great nation so that nation could be the channel for the greatest blessing of all time. That channel would be the way that God would enter the misery and the obscenity and the sin of this world and do for man what man can't do for himself. Take his sins completely away. And in God's economy, in God's eternal plans and in his decrees, he will use this nation, starting with one man, Abram, to accomplish this, pur- this purpose and to bring your redemption and my redemption. Matthew outlines this. Look for the first page in the New Testament. And what do you see? A genealogy. But look at that genealogy. It starts in verse 2 with Abram. And it ends in verse 16 with Jesus Christ. That's amazing. I don't know how many of you are into tracing your ancestry. My daughter-in-law is. And she gets all thrilled if she can go back four or five generations. This list in Matthew goes back 42 generations. And it's all listed there. Don't you suppose the Holy Spirit preserved that scripture so that Matthew could write it down? I don't imagine that Abram completely comprehended what all this was about and how he could be a blessing to the world. I mean, he was 75 years old at the time. How could this nation that he was promising, that God was promising, be a blessing to the world? But it says Abram went out and did what the Lord told him. Now, for the next 10 years, 
Abram has what the English novelists like to call many adventures. He and his nephew Lot, as they approached the land of Canaan, the Lord appeared to them again, and the Lord said, To your offspring I will give this land. Then there was a famine in the land, and Abram and his tribe survived it by going to Egypt, and he must have done okay down there. Because the scripture says he was very rich when he came back in livestock and gold and silver. Well, he and Lot then separated and went their own ways. And there were skirmishes between rival kings. That's what we would call tribal skirmishes over there in that part of the country today. And Lot was taken prisoner. So Abram teamed up with four other kings or tribal leaders, and they fought five kings, and they got Lot back. And then Abram met the king of Salem, Melchizedek. But that's a whole other sermon. We're not going to get into that one this morning. So ten years, lots of things happened, but one thing didn't happen. There was still no offspring. How do you become a great nation without any sons? And that's where we pick up our story this morning. Now, to understand this passage of Scripture, you really need to do two things. First of all, you've got to read it existentially. You've got to put yourself in Abram's, I was going to say shoes, but it would be sandals. Put yourself in Abram's sandals, or at least walk beside him. Be in the picture. And the second thing is, to read this passage using the principles of contextual Bible study. Which simply means, as you read a passage of Scripture, ask questions. Who said it? To whom was it said? Why was it said? When was it said at that time and not some other time? What did the speaker mean? What did the person who heard it understand it to mean? And then ask, is there any extended meaning beyond this point for the rest of history? And finally, when you've answered these questions, ask, what does it mean to me today? The problem we get into many times in Scripture is we ask the last question first. What does it mean to me today? Then we read, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And the Lord said, Abram, fear not. I am your shield, and your reward shall be great. Now, some commentators think that the reason the Lord said, fear not to Abram, was that Abram was afraid that some of these kings were going to come back and get him. But that doesn't fit the context. Abram's fear, I think, was the fear of the future because he had no sons. And now he was 85 years old. Folks, the biological clock was running down. And Abram expressed this fear when he said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, 
And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. You know, it almost sounds like Abram is whining at this point. Behold, you give me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. But the Lord is patient. And he takes Abram and he takes him outside. And he says, okay, Abram, look up. This man will not be your heir. Your son will be your heir. Look up at the heavens and number the stars if you can count them. And he said, so shall your offspring be. Then the scripture says what is one of the most often quoted verses in all of scripture. And he, that is Abram, and he believed the Lord and it was counted to him or reckoned to him as righteousness. This is the verse that Paul speaks about in Romans 4. It's one of the backbone verses of the Reformation, and it's often used to show that Abram's faith was rock solid. But folks, I'm so glad that the the next two verses are there because they speak to me, as you'll see in a minute. How many times, how many times have I said, maybe under my breath to God, can't you just give me some reassurance? Can't you just give me a little sign? It wasn't that Abram didn't believe. It isn't that I don't believe. But I'm very much like the father that brought the paralytic son to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, all things are possible for those who believe. And the man cried out to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. And I think that's where Abram was. And God said to Abram, hey Abram, remember this. I'm the Lord that brought you out from the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And what does Abram say? Well, he, gives you, he gives God a yes but. But, oh Lord, how can I know that I shall possess it? The Lord didn't get ticked off with Abraham or Abram. He didn't take him out and give him another lecture. But I can almost hear the Lord say, Abram, aren't the promises and a handshake enough for you? What, do you need a contract? And then the Lord said, bring me a heifer. I think Abram knew exactly what was happening at that point. There was going to be a covenant cut. See, in Abram's day, they didn't get the lawyers together and draw up contracts. The two parties entering into a binding agreement cut a covenant. In fact, the Hebrew word used in the Old Testament for covenant literally means to cut. And here's how it worked. 
They would bring an animal, usually a donkey, and they'd split it down the middle. And they'd put one piece over here and another piece over here. Then the two parties that were entering into the covenant would walk in a figure eight around and through the torn pieces of the animal. And as they did, they would be saying, if I fail to keep my part of this covenant, may it be done unto me as it is with this animal. You can see another example of this if you read in Jeremiah. But this was an extraordinary covenant. It just wasn't a donkey. God said to Abram, bring me a heifer three years old, bring me a female goat three years old, bring me a a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abram brought them and cut them in half as the Lord had said. I often think what a bloody mess that must have been. Remember, Abram lived in mid-bronze age. They didn't have surgical steel to cut things nice and neat in those days. And then God put Abram into a deep sleep. Now, why did he do that? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. By speaking to Abram in a sleep, the Lord would be cutting out all extraneous distractions. And he wanted Abram to get the details fixed in his mind clearly. The second thing is, if Abram had seen this covenant played out face to face, it would have been a a worse traumatic experience than it was already. Because when human beings face the holiness of God, it's never fun and games. It's never, oh, that was a wonderful experience with the Lord today. It's terrifying. Read Isaiah 6, the classic passage that speaks about this. What was Isaiah's reaction? Lord, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. Woe is me. I'm done. And then the third reason is that if Abram was asleep, he couldn't walk through the covenant animals. He couldn't participate in it. It would be strictly a unilateral covenant. It would be 100% God and 0% Abram. And we read, when the sun had gone down, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Folks, do you see what's happening here? God is passing between the animals, these ripped up animals. And he's saying, in essence, if I do not keep my promises that I made to you, Abram, May I be as these dead animals. May I cease to exist. In other words, God was putting his very existence on the line. And the writer of Hebrews picks this up and says it very well. Because he says this, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater 
by whom to swear. He swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it. He guaranteed it with an oath. I don't know whether you've ever testified in court. I've been retained as an expert witness several times. And in Allegheny County Court, it used to be, they would say, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God to whom you will be accountable on the last day. Now, I don't know whether they do that anymore. I doubt if they put at least the accountable on the last day in. But when we swear an oath, we swear of something greater than ourselves. What's God going to swear by that's greater than himself? So he swears by his own righteous being. Abram would never forget forget that. Even in his dreams and his visions of sleep. He would pass this picture of the covenant on to his son. Who would pass it on to his son? Who would pass it on to their children? And on and on to their children and their children for 42 generations. But you see, the promise of God really began before time. When he made his plan that when the fullness of time had come, he would send his son into a fallen and sinful world. And that's what this is all about. And this whole chain of events in space and time starts out with God making a promise. A promise to Abram. And God will take this man and he will mold him into a man of faith. And he will build up a nation. And this nation will be unique in all of history. Oh, these people will go through some terrible times. Persecution and slavery. They'll go through some times of power and glory. And they'll go through some times of apostasy. But that nation will hold together and will be a blessing to the whole world just as God had promised. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about what a miracle it is that the Hebrew people have maintained their identity for 42 generations? And during these 42 generations, at least some people remembered the promise made to Abraham and passed it along by tradition, verbally, and by writing it down in the scriptures. And that's exactly what happened. God made a covenant that could not be broken. And 2,000 years after, remember, Abram lived roughly about 1970 B.C. And 2,000 years later, the promises given to Abraham and were ratified by the torch passing between the animals 
2,000 years later, a teenage girl named Mary. Sang this. My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. And then nine months later, angels appear in the sky over Bethlehem, singing glory to God in the highest. And what has happened, people? The promise has become a person. That's what Paul is talking about in his letter to the Galatians. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, which is Christ. Well, Jeremiah prophesied that the covenant made with Abram would be replaced by a new covenant. And that's what happened when Jesus, at the Passover meal, said, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for, your forg- for forgiveness of your sins. And the new covenant, folks, was not ratified by broken bodies of a heifer and a goat and a ram. It was not by the manifestation of God in smoke and fire, but by God incarnate in his Son, his body broken and his blood shed. And just as God's promises were unilateral and guaranteed by his oath, so are the promises of the New Testament, the New Covenant. In one sense, really, there's only one covenant. It started before all time, and it continues before to, into all eternity. And that covenant, folks, is God loves you. Understand the first half, even, of John 3.16. For God so loved the world, and you will understand the message of the Bible. God loves you. So we have the promise. It started with Abraham, or Abram. It was ratified by the torch. It was fulfilled in Bethlehem. It was accomplished on the cross and completed by an empty tomb. Think about these things. Father, we thank you so much. It is all the ebb and flow of history. Your promises hold true and solid because you are true and solid. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.